Well, you know that September marks the time when we usually finish our summer play and sort of get back to work, right? Many of us have started homeschooling our children or sent them back to school. Uh, Parents are slowly getting back to their usual work schedules. So work, 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 work is on our minds. We're settling down into sort of another year of hard labors. Well, this is also a time when um, we might be thinking about the significance of what we do, right? Is our work meaningful? How important is it that we do? Uh, and maybe do you, you find yourself maybe sometimes overwhelmed at this thought that what if what I do doesn't matter ultimately? Right? Whether it's at home or maybe it's your career or maybe it's the work of ministry, you might ask yourself this. Does it ultimately matter if my life is futile? I mean, do you wonder if there's lasting purpose or it will all just fade away as your children grow up and they get on with their life and you grow old and you die? Maybe you've worked so hard for all of your life and you're older now, and you can't really enjoy what you have hoped to enjoy as you were younger because you're just dealing with all kinds of pains, and maybe what you thought life would be like in your latter years is very different now. Or perhaps you're young, maybe in your your 20s, maybe in your 30s or 40s, and you are now thinking about that time when you will enjoy it by just looking around and seeing everything around you. You are second-guessing. You are wondering, will it all matter at the end of my life? Friends, life is too short. Everyone expires. There's expiration date. Statistics don't lie. 10 out of 10 people die. Can you really enjoy life knowing what awaits you? Sort of this existential question, right? I want you to open to Psalm 90. Open your Bibles to Psalm 90. This morning we will attempt to answer these questions. As we look at this song of Moses, which he penned while he was wandering with the nation of Israel in the wilderness for 40 years. We know from the book of Numbers that because of their lack of faith and because of their disobedience to the Lord, God determined that the generation of adults who walked out of Egypt, they would not enter the promised land, but instead would actually die in the wilderness. And like it or not, friends, the only reason why they went around for 40 years in the wilderness is so that they would die. If you read 1 Kings, there's a remark that the journey from the Red Sea to the Promised Land is actually 11 days journey. 11 days. You could go from Egypt basically crossing to the Promised Land, to the edge of the Promised Land. They walked for 40 years, why? They got lost? No. God determined that everyone, every adult would die because of their disobedience to the Lord. And think about this, Moses now, as he sees his friends for whom he cared for, whom he led 
year after year, they die one after another. He, in fact, is asking this very question. How can this brief life that is filled with so much sorrow and so much pain and so much disappointment have any lasting significance? Is there more to it? Can we redeem this life? But being the man of God as he is, Moses is not driven to despair. He is driven to worship as we look at scripture here in Psalm 90. And this psalm here, this song is the result of Moses' meditation on the Lord and how that reflects in our life, even as it is so brief. And in the end, here is the, the answer that your brief life is meaningful and enjoyable only if it is lived in God and for God. This is the result of Moses' reflection. Our life, brief as it is, is only meaningful, is only significant if it is permeated by God. We must be properly related to God for our lives to have any lasting significance. As we look at these verses, I want us to learn three lessons about the brevity of our life. Our short days, what do they teach us? And so first of all, I want us to look that our earthly brevity reminds us that God alone is everlasting. God alone is everlasting. I want you to read with me the first six verses of this psalm. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were born or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn man back into dust and say, return, O children of men. For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by or as a watch in the night. You have swept them away like a flood. They fall asleep. In the morning, they are like grass, which sprouts anew. In the morning, it flourishes and sprouts anew. Towards evening, it fades and withers away. Our earthly brevity reminds us that God alone is everlasting. The first six verses of the song, Moses wants us to be confronted with our mortality each one of us will die. Our days are few. Our lives are short. Each one has an expiration date. Friends, you and I know we do not remain on this earth forever. It seems like this year especially, we've uh, frequented the cemetery uh, almost every month. I've counted up the times that I've been there. It's like twice a month. I've gone to Auburn or some other cemetery because someone passed away. And there's a great reminder that our days are short. It doesn't matter if someone passes away in their 30s or 40s or in their 80s. At the end of the day, there's not much of a difference. Consider how Moses begins this psalm. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. What is his emphasis? Yes, he will go on to emphasize the Lord's love towards the end of the psalm here, but the point here in these opening verses is God. 
Think about God. Moses is reflecting on the nature of God, how unchangeable he is, how eternal, how infinite our God is. Literally, verse one reads, you have been our dwelling place from generation to generation. And and then in verse three, from everlasting to everlasting. It's it's hard for us, friends, as much as we would like to to just understand and, and fully comprehend what what. It means, right, for someone to, to not have a beginning because we all have a beginning. We celebrate our beginnings. Each year we reflect on our birth date. But God, he, he exists outside of time. He exists outside of time and it is only true of him. He has no beginning. In the first uh, verse of the chapter, right? Genesis 1.1, we read, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. And, and it records the beginning of the universe, or as Moses put here in verse two, before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and to the world, God gave birth to something. He put something up front. He created something. But Genesis 1.1 is not the beginning of God. He always was. From everlasting, right, eternity past, verse two, to everlasting, eternity future. I know it's challenging for us to consider these concepts. You are God, not you were God. You are, you presently remain and will always be. God is uniquely infinite He is the fountain, as we find out, and the source of all being. God alone is God. And friends, we are not. We are not. God is infinite. We are finite. We are not like God. And I hope that it's not a surprise to anybody here, right? But we need to be reminded of this. We need to be reminded that we're not like God so often we think of ourselves that, man, I'm this, you know, and I'm, I'm all this, I'm all that, I can do this, I can do that. And then, you know, right about noon this, today, we will begin to feel hungry. We will begin to look at places that we can go visit, right? Or wondering if, if we have something prepared at home for lunch. Why? Because we go hungry. We're not all that, guys. And then at the end of the day, our batteries begin to be depleted, right? And what do we do? We need to recharge by going to bed. We sleep. We are not all that. But God doesn't sleep. God stays up all night from everlasting to everlasting. He is everlasting, but we are dust, verse 3. You turn men back to dust. He who created the earth and all that inhabits it. He is also the supreme Lord. He is the supreme Lord who created man out of dust, Genesis 2-7. And then he requires man to come back to dust, Genesis 3-19. And guess what? Generation after generation, we put our parents, our grandparents, our great-great-parents to sleep. Why? Because we're dust. And yet generation after generation, God remains. 
God stays up. God continues to exist. But consider the the point here, right, that he's making in verse four. Moses, uh, look, for a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday. Maybe Moses right now is thinking about Genesis and maybe that period of time before the flood where sort of an average lifespan of a human being was close to a thousand, right? Methuselah, remember the oldest man? He lived to be 969 years old, almost a thousand. That's a long time. That, that, that is crazy long time. But in God's sight, in God's sight, it is what? But a day. And this is in fact what Peter picks up, right? Later on in Peter, for a thousand years is like a single day and a single day like a thousand years. God exists outside of time. It doesn't matter if your life is a hundred years old to our, in our estimation, man, that's a long time or a thousand, which we can't even comprehend. And he says, it's just, it's but a yesterday. In fact, it's not like a day, it's shorter than a day or as a watch in the night. The night 12 hour period was usually broken up into four watches or three, depending on um, you know, how they calculate it. But it's like a three or a four hour block. Three or a four hour block. To God, a thousand years is like three hours. It's completely insignificant. Our brevity reminds us that we are not God, that God is God and we are mortal. And to drive the point even further, consider what verses six what verse six says, we, we are helpless in the face of death. It sweeps like a flood. Verse five, you have swept them away like a flood. Probably maybe even recalling the time where Moses himself pens Genesis about the flood account. All these people who remained for close to a thousand years, they were all swept. And they did not remain We are like grass of the field, which looks good in the morning after it gets watered, right? And then because of the scorching sun, it withers away by the end of the day. Charles Spurgeon says this, he says, quote, history, here is the history of the grass, sown, grown, blown, mown, and gone. And the history of men is not much more. We're just like grass. Friends, we, if, if we think we're all that, we're not. We're not, and Scripture is very blunt about it. God really wants us to understand. Friends, our lives are short and they are uncertain. We don't know when we're going to die, but we know that we will. We know that we will. Our brief lives should remind us that we are dust. You know, I've read, um, it's taken church history uh, how, how certain pastors and, and uh, certain theologians, scholars, they would oftentimes take a human skull and they would place it on the shelf where they would study scripture, where they would spend a lot of their time reading and writing and thinking. That it would be a constant reminder of their mortality. We don't last forever, we're gonna die. I don't know if, you're, if you've seen old church buildings, um, especially on the East Coast, 
if you look at the first places where Christians, as they came to America, they settled, they built their buildings, you will notice more often than not that each building, each church building, right next to it had a cemetery, had a graveyard. Why? It was a constant reminder that your life is short. Your life is short. You need to figure out who you're worshiping and who you're serving. When you come into the worship service on Sunday, you walk by gravesite. And it reminds you that you're not gonna be here forever. Our lives are temporary. Friends, God's word is clear. Our lives are brief, and that should sober us up and remind us that God alone is everlasting. And apart from being connected to him, apart from being connected to him, our lives are pointless. We are born, we exist, we do stuff, and then we die. Apart from us being connected to God, our lives are futile. Now, this raises a question, why? Why do we die? Why do we die? Why do we only exist 60, 70, 80, 90 years? Why? And that brings us to our second point. Our, the earthly brevity reveals God's anger against our sin. Our earthly brevity reveals God's anger against our sin. Let's read verses 7 through 11. Four. Four. And this word is very important because it gives us the reason why verses 1 through 6 are true. We died because, for we have been consumed by your anger, and by your wrath we have been dismayed. You have placed our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your presence. For all our days have declined in your fury. We have finished our years like a sigh. As for the days of our life, they contain 70 years, or if due to strength, 80 years. Yet their pride is but labor and sorrow, for soon it is gone and we fly away. Who understands the power of your anger and your fury according to the fear that is do you. Friends, here is the thrust of this passage here, these verses. We are finite because we are fallen. Finite because we are fallen. Think about this, around 120 people die every minute. Every minute as a result of their sin. It is a consequence of sin, and therefore it is God's judgment against sin. Moses was one of the men who understood wrath and anger. Just consider verses 7 through 11. He mentions anger in verse 7, wrath in verse 7, fury in verse 9. In verse 11, once again, anger and fury. You can feel the heaviness in Moses' heart here coming through these words. You know, last Sunday we looked at this glorious song in in Exodus 17, which inspired Israel's worship. They worshiped Yahweh because he demonstrated his power over the Egyptians and he brought them through the Red Sea. And so as as they see Still, Egyptians swimming in the waters of the Red Sea, they burst out in song and praise to God. 
But as we saw even in the very same chapter, chapter 15, they didn't sing for long. Their singing, right, turned into sinning. Singing turns into sinning. Day after day, we find out as we continue to read from Exodus 15, they kept testing the Lord. And as a result, they were put to death. Think about this. One point two roughly million people, adults, leave Egypt. Plus kids, but we're dealing with adults at this point. And in the span of 40 years, all but two, all but two die. It's about 30,000 a year, or if you were to break it up by day, it's about 82 people per day that kept dying. And obviously, I don't think they were dying systematically, right, 82 a day. We know of some instances where thousands perished in a single day. But here's the point. Moses, he buried a lot of people. He's been to plenty of funerals. And he knows what it's like to have your life cut short because of God's wrath against sin. Consider the imagery here. He says, for we have been consumed. And consumed here, it denotes uh, something that, that has perished. Wholly swallowed up. Nothing remains. And why was it, why did it perish? It says, by your wrath, right? We have been consumed by your anger anger here, which literally means that it points to his nostrils. It points to the Lord's nose, uh, the, the sound that you make when you're angry, when you're not happy with someone. And do you remember from last Sunday back in Exodus 15, 8, when the Lord was not happy with the Egyptians who pursued his people, right? What did he do in verses 15, in verse uh, Eight of Exodus 15, we find out that Moses wrote, at the blast of your nostrils, the waters were piled up. God was angry against the Egyptians, but it turns out that he wasn't just angry with the Egyptians. God is also angry with his own people. God expresses his anger as righteous indignation against all sin. What sin specifically? Verse, verse 8, Moses says, you have placed our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the sight of your presence. Friends, God is angry at both obvious sin and our secret sin, our hidden sin. And no doubt, may Moses, as, as he writes this, he is first and foremost reflecting the state of his own heart here. He's probably thinking about that time when maybe he was impatient in Numbers 20. Maybe he was angry with the nation of Israel for which he too was barred from entering the promised land. And he's contemplating that and he's thinking, you know, Lord, you know it all. You know it all. Friends, God sees right through each one of us. No sin even those committed at the deepest level of our hearts are hidden from the penetrating light of God's holy present. No sin. Every form of sin is apparent and transparent before the Lord. 
David in Psalm 139, consider what David says, O Lord, you have searched me and know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there's a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. God knows all secret sins. Hebrews 4.13 says, And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Friends, everything is revealed to God, and that is a terrifying thought. And under the Lord's close watch, under the heat of his anger, a person's existence is cut short. Life is often filled with endless struggles and countless afflictions, and, and in the end, at the end of your painful existence, you end it all with a sigh, with a moan, with a groan. It's over. It's over. Look what he says in verse 10. As for the days of our life, they contain 70 years, or if due to strength, 80 years, yet their pride is but labor and sorrow, for soon it is gone and we fly away. The pride of life refers to the best of our life, the, the prime of our life. When we're strong, when we're full of zeal, we're we're full of confidence that, you know, you can do anything you want. Don't let anybody tell you what to do. You go and do it because you're full of strength. You're full of power. No one can stop you from pursuing your own dreams. That's it right here. Friends, but even in the 20s and the 30s and the 40s, you quickly find out that your life is full of grief. It's full of disappointments. It's full of, full of losses. The best years, the pride is labor and sorrow. You still work really hard, and you still cry very hard, even in the most productive years of your life. You know, to us who are young, 70 or 80, it seems like a long time, although I'm halfway there already. Um, some live longer if, as Moses says, God adds strength to your years, so you may end up living to 80 or 90, 100 maybe. Praise the Lord if that's you. Moses lived to 120. And according to the end of Deuteronomy, he was but a youth. He was strong. Nothing failed in his body. But you know what happened? God says, Moses, you're done. It's time for me to lead people into the promised land. So it's time for you to die. Come up here to this mountain, and you're going to come see me, and you're not going to return. Why? Because of sin. Friends, no matter how old you are, and no matter how old you will get to, against the backdrop of God's eternity, your life is short. Your days are short. Why? Because of sin. This is not how God originally created us to be. It's the consequence of the fall. Our mortality and the brevity of our life is a direct result of God's judgment. 
And the reality of death ought to make people face the reality of their sin and the fact that one day they will stand before a holy God. Which brings us to verse 11. Moses says, who understands the power of your anger and your fury according to the fear that is due you. In other words, who thinks about this? Moses is wondering, am I the only one? Am I the only one who is putting the two plus two together? Who thinks about this? Who's making this connection between God's wrath and the shortness of our days? Every time you pass by the cemetery, you need to be reminded that God is a holy God and he judges men's sin. And that is why we have cemeteries. Who makes this connection? People don't typically think about this. I mean, have you ever had an unbeliever come up to you and say, you know what, man, I'm experiencing God's wrath on on my life uh, today as my life is, you know, speeding to its end. Nobody thinks this way. Everybody's just pursuing their own thing. They're pursuing their own dreams. That's what they do. And Moses wants us to stop and Moses wants us to reflect and think, why do we do what we do? the work that we're engaged in this fall and and in the winter and in the spring, will it ultimately matter? Why do you do what you do? Because you're going to die. What is the end result? What is the end result? The idea here in the second part of this verse, verse 11, he says, and your fury according to the fear that is due you. What, What Moses means is, that the power of God's fury, it mirrors the fear that he deserves to receive from us. Just as as God is furious, this is the same passion that we need to have to revere and to fear God. In the same way that he is furious against sin, we need to fear the Lord. So how must we live so as to fear the Lord and be wise I mean, is there hope for us sinners? Can we, can we still enjoy life knowing that we're going to die? Well, we find out here in the rest of this song that there is great hope, that there is great hope. And friends, here's the great news that this hope is found in the same God who is angry with our sin. Let's read verses 12 through the end. Moses concludes and he says, So teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. Do return, O Lord, how long will it be? And be sorry for your servant. O satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make us glad according to the days you have afflicted us and the years we have seen evil. Let your work appear to your servant and your servants and your majesty to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and confirm to us the work of our hands. Yes, confirm the work of our hands. We get to the final point, final lesson, and it is this. Our brevity, our earthly brevity teaches us to take refuge in God. Think about this, verse 12. This is Moses' first request in this song. Moses does not begin with requests. 
He doesn't demand that God should fix his problems. Rather, he begins by meditating on who God is first. And only after rooting his thoughts in God as the eternal judge, is he then ready to seek God's mercy. His first request is he's asking for wisdom, verse 12. So teach us to number of our days. Lord, teach me to know that my life is brief. Why? So that I may be wise. So that I may be wise in the way that I walk before you. So that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. So that we as a whole person may be wise in the way we deal with this reality, the brevity of life and the infinity of God the eternality of God. What do we do with all of this? And what does it mean then to be wise in light of these first truths that we learn? Well, Moses here, he seeks mercy. He seeks mercy from the Lord. To be wise is to come to a merciful Lord. And in verse three here, Moses notes that God turns back men into dust, right? Verse three, you turn men back into dust. Dust, But in verse 13, he pleads that the Lord would turn back from his anger and that he would have a, a posture of favor, of grace towards his people. Lord, I know you turn men back into dust and rightly so because we deserve it. But Lord, turn back from your anger. I mean, isn't this amazing, friends? Knowing that God is angry against our sin, we are not told to run from God. We are told to turn to God and seek his refuge. Because God, who has the power to kill, has the grace and love to accept you and to restore you. Same God. And there is no other way. Moses is seeking refuge in God. Be sorry, he says, and be sorry for your servant. It's a cry for the Lord to forgive them, for the Lord to relent from his fury and from his anger. Look, Moses makes it clear from, from verse one here that we sinful creatures can, in fact, have a relationship with eternal God. He says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place. Our. We who are sinners, you have been our dwelling place. And in verse 17, let the favor of the Lord, our God, the eternal God is our God. He is our dwelling place. So friends, God's eternity is not a problem, but a solution. It's an answer to our brevity. He alone lasts forever. Therefore, we must seek refuge in him to last forever. But how do we seek refuge if he's angry? If God is angry, if God is full of fury, wrath, how do we seek refuge? Well, it's because we find out, he says, that God is full of love. Oh, satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. And isn't this amazing, friends? And, and how? How would this awesome God love us? Well, we've been singing all morning about these amazing truths. 
It is through Christ. It is through his son. There's only one shelter that is safe from God's wrath, and that is God himself, Jesus Christ. That's it. There is no other way. You know, we live in California where there are a ton of, unfortunately, wildfires, and it seems like they've been increasing with each passing year. I don't know if you've ever looked into the strategy of how they fight these wildfires. They, they usually, you know, isolate the, the beginning where, where it started, the hot spot, and then what they do in their efforts to fight this wildfire, they would go a mile or two knowing that they have a really small chance of stopping it there. So what they do is they, they go some way away from the fire and they start burning the perimeter around they start taking care of this fuel forest so that as this wildfire progresses, it would come to a point where there's no more fuel to burn. There are no more trees. There's no more brush, right? And so the hope is that it will stop from burning. So they intentionally burn forest in order to stop the burning forest. And friends, in a very similar way, Jesus Christ is this burned earth around the wildfire of God's wrath. He, he takes the wrath of God for us so that all who take refuge in him would be safe from the fire of God's anger. He takes it upon himself. And, and not only just the final wrath, right, that, that we're no longer liable for, but we also can live now this life here full of burdens and sadness and pain and trials and we can rejoice today. No matter how difficult it is, we can rejoice today that we're not under a curse anymore. It's been solved by the one who took the wrath of God. We are in Christ and we possess his blessing. He is our life. We are in him. He is in us as we were just reflecting, participating in communion. He is our personal Lord and Savior. We have a relationship with him. And that is why we can cry out with Moses here in verse 14, oh, satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness. Moses here prays that God would end their suffering and that he would fill their mornings, fill their days with unending love. God has this unspeakable love, this eternal love. And because God is eternal and reliable, his love is always reliable. We, friends, who have been devastated and ragged by sin and God's righteous judgment against it are now rescued. And we can sing with joy and gladness. We can sing with joy and gladness. You, because of Christ, can sing with joy and gladness because apart from Christ, you will still be in verses seven and nine. If God doesn't show you love, you're stuck in verse 10 because after 70 or 80 or 90 or 100 years, you're living with this terrifying prospect of eternity in separation from God. But instead, because God so loved the world that he gave his son, anyone who believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life.
friends, a relationship with God through Christ is the only thing that will satisfy you in this life. Nothing else gives you meaning. Nothing else makes you glad at the end of the day. Sure, a sale will make you glad, right? Your kids turning out and becoming someone you wish that they would become, that can make you glad for a season. But at the end of the day, when this is all said and done, and the looming prospect of you standing before God fills your mind, what then? What then? Only a relationship with God can satisfy you. And, and God's satisfaction, friends, it goes beyond the truth that just your sins are forgiven. It's, it's all about that. My sins are forgiven. That is great. But I think it goes beyond that. Um, you can actually be glad in life and, and see God's goodness in all the little things. And I can't help but wonder when he says, I want to, oh, satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness. I wonder if Moses is saying, you know what, Lord, as I just wake up in the morning and I see a new sunrise, right? I can reflect on the sunrise and I could say, praise the Lord. I'm going to enjoy this day for the Lord because the Lord is on my side. In the very little things in your life, right, your family, as you raise your kids, as you love your spouse, as you build other relationships, like it, you can rejoice knowing that this is done in the Lord and for the Lord. God's love can satisfy you even in the most difficult circumstances in your life. And also, a relationship with God through Christ is the only thing that ultimately gives you meaning and purpose in life. In verses 16 and 17 here, Moses asked that God would just continue to show to the future generations his majestic work as he has done in the past through these 40 years in bringing them to the promised land. And as he brings them there, Lord, continue to demonstrate, right? Let your work appear to your servants. Continue to demonstrate who you are, not only to us, but to our children as well in verse 16. And then he, reflecting on God's work, it moves him to pray about his own work. And in verse 17, he says, let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and confirm to us the work of our hand. What is he asking here? He prays that God would establish, that God would give meaning and purpose to their work, that whatever they do in life, it would actually last. It would have lasting, eternal significance. And I don't think Moses here is only thinking about his own work, like the priestly work that he is doing for the Lord. I think he means our work, like Everybody in the nation, whatever you do, you do for the Lord, like family life, church life, business, etc. When you serve the Lord, everything you do matters for the Lord, friends. And so if you were to apply this in our context, then if you're a builder, right, if you're a doctor, if you're a photographer, or, I don't know, lawyer, pastor, homemaker, whatever you do, driver, accountant, you're working for God because he is your dwelling place. You are in him and you're doing this for him. And that's why it's significant when you raise your kids and when you instruct them, homeschool, or when you teach a Bible study, or when you go and you talk to your coworker, all of these things, they have significance, lasting eternal impact and significance. You are in Christ and he is in you.
There's an illustration that I've, um, I heard Chuck Swindoll, he once spoke at a family camp um, when the entire week he spent just talking about the purposes that God has for every uh, profession. And so he encouraged all the believers just to realize that each of their vocation is ordained by God and they're supposed to please God wherever they are. And so at the end of the, the week, a man comes up and, and he's just recalling how much this camp has helped him to really reorient his, his view of his work. And so the camp director then asks him, and, uh, what do you do for a living? And the man says, my work? He says, I'm an ordained plumber. I'm an ordained plumber. Why? Because your work has significance for the Lord. It's not just about your job or your boss, right? It's for the Lord. It has meaning. It has significance. Can you really enjoy life, friends, knowing that you're going to die? Can you enjoy today? Can you enjoy this next season of life? God's word is very clear, absolutely. You can be satisfied in this life, even though it's very short. Even though it's very short. You can be full of joy. You can be full of gladness. You can live with meaning and purpose because you take refuge in the Lord. And when it's all said and done and you will die, then you will die and your death will be a translation into glory as opposed to experience of his everlasting wrath. So you can enjoy. Your brief life is meaningful and enjoyable only if it is lived in God and for God. Friends, let's rejoice. Let's be glad in the Lord. Do your work. That's why New Testament authors over and over again In light of this, right, I just read at the beginning of the service that we have been redeemed from this futile way of life, futile way of life to serve the Lord, right? Kirill read from chapter four that, hey, it is time to stop fooling around. That life is done. You are now living for the Lord. Spend the rest of your life doing that which is lasting. And that means even the most mundane things that you do at home or at work, wherever it may be. What kind of attitude are you doing it with? Because it is all lasting work. And friends, finally, for those of you who do not know the Lord personally, for those of you who have not taken refuge in this Lord, I mean, consider the result of your life. You are still under the wrath of God. And you will expire, but God's wrath won't. And you will drink it for the rest of eternity. It's hard to imagine, it's hard to fathom, but that is the reality. And so I plead with you this morning, our Lord is full of loving kindness. Our Lord is full of compassion. Turn to him in faith. Believe in Christ and you will find ultimate satisfaction in him. Our Father, we are so thankful for this message of hope, message of love, that whatever we do in this life, because 
of the refuge that you provide for us in your son, we can not only look forward to the life to come, but this very life we can live in the way that we will rejoice and be glad all of our days, however short they are. We thank you. And may we encourage one another, build one another up to consider our life with all the ups and downs as a gift from you to be offered to you as a sacrifice of praise and worship. We ask these things for your glory alone and our good. Amen.